1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Irma Boom about her career and about the art and craft
2: of her celebrated book designs. What I make is always very intrinsic. The solution is already in the assignment. And I must say, you say all these wonderful words, but I think I'm an extremely bad designer. What? What?
1: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Irma Boom is a book designer. A really, really good one. We're talking 50 books in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. That's how good. Her books aren't just beautifully crafted objects. They're visual journeys. Sentences run off the page. Image and text play off each other. Pages dip and fold. Some are shredded, sliced, cut. Her magnum opus is a book celebrating a Dutch energy corporation's 100th birthday. It took her a year and a half to design, but over three years to prepare for. She went to shareholders' meetings and dug through the company's archives. One of her books, Weaving as Metaphor, was called the most beautiful book in the world. Did I mention she was the youngest person ever to get the acclaimed Gutenberg Award for graphic artists? Irma Boom, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. So Irma, the last line of your book, the architecture of the book, is the line, the book is dead, long live the book. Why the contradiction?
2: It's a sentence from, uh, from England. If uh, the king dies, you say the king is dead, long live the the king so it's it's something uh, which uh, refers to that but also to this conversation where massimo di th- designers and book triggered me by saying the book is dead and uh, he made me think of that and so so it's basically very good that he said it so many times that I thought about it and thought I have to write a statement why the book is not dead. The book is maybe dead, but it's more alive than ever. And so there is a moment that you can say the book is dead. And certainly I think a few years ago when the internet was, it, of course it's still big and will be bigger any any every second, but um, that people doubted if books were still valuable. And I think... The book maybe was at some point dead, but it's certainly more alive than ever. So when you actually said
0: that on stage, I was in the audience. Massimo Vignelli was particularly, I don't know if cantankerous is the right word, but he was particularly vehement about the fact that the book was dead. He did keep saying it over and over. I don't know if he really believed it or if he was trying to egg you on, but it does seem to me that... Whenever I am interviewing designers that have had a specialty in books or if I'm in the audience with uh, people that are being interviewed or talking about books, every designer that I speak to feels that we are actually in a time where there's never been better design of books that there is this opportunity now to do something that's never been done before, which is to truly help books be sold by the grand and sheer beauty of their making. Um, Would you agree with that?
2: Well, what I think is interesting if, pe- if people say the book is that of course they tease me because I think the book is more alive than ever I do I agree and and I think because of internet and social media what all is flux and ev- and changes uh, every moment you want to change content and I think the book will uh, gain or regain more uh, value because of the frozen information of the book so because because it's a frozen information, I call it. Fro- I don't know if it's a good expression. No, it's perfect. It's <laughs> telegraphic, <laughs> and so you you make a piece of work which is not changeable, and therefore I think it it becomes an, a piece, a container to reflect on, and I think that's an important thing. It is something. What is uh, Like the SHV book, imagine if we had made a DVD or a website, then it was already obsolete, it was already gone. And now the book is 16 years old, no, 18 years old. It's basically young, of course. But it's still a book where uh, where people revert to. And and because of this book, this not-changeable fact, I think that gives a value. And maybe because... Internet and iPads, and etc., uh, become so uh, is so part of our life. That's why I think of the Renaissance of the book, so that that something is is a fact and is, yeah, not changeable. Maybe gets more value. Hopefully.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit more, quite a lot more, actually, about the SHV book. But I want to start a little bit before that. Let's start at the beginning. You were born in the Netherlands in 1960. And in 1979, you attended the AKI School of Fine Art in Enschede in Eastern Holland. But I understand that you originally wanted to be a painter. You were a fan of Ellsworth Kelly and Agnes Martin. What changed your mind? What made you decide to become a designer?
2: Well, I went to art school because I had this very romantic idea of becoming a painter and and working in your studio all alone and creating all this wonderful uh, stuff. But then I realized it's really hard to become a very good painter. And but I've, it's but, hard,
0: really hard to become a really good anything.
2: <laughs> that's true. But uh, maybe I was missing something. There was a sort of necessity missing of actually doing making the paintings, to convince myself all the time to to get to work. And it basically didn't work. And then I I went to this liberal school, the Aki, as you mentioned. You could do photography or fashion or architecture, so you could walk around in the school. And at some point I found this uh, teacher who brought always suitcases with uh, books to the school and, and would talk about it. And that and, was Abe, Abe Kupers. And that was Abba Kupers. And so that's the person who I basically fell in love with, not not with him, of course, but with, with what he was saying, talking about books, why books have a, a specific presence why uh, are poetry books like this? He all talked about books, and you would also read from the books. It was about form and content. It was so inspiring, I stayed.
0: At school, you were encouraged to do endless experiments. In fact, you've said it was a school where you could do anything that you liked. But then I read that you felt that your liberal education left you with a lack of technical know-how. Yet you seem to have turned that to your advantage in quite a unique way. You wrote in your book, because I didn't know all the technical things, if I had a solution in my head, I would just want it done like that. If they said it wasn't technically possible, I would just keep insisting. And I always found a way in the end. Um, You must have driven people crazy. (laughs) I can imagine your sort of steadfast belief, this can happen.
2: Exactly. And that's exactly what happened. And um, so, of course, you have to know things. But I really didn't know anything. At school, we only learned to conceptualize issues. So it was really interesting and I think very valuable, more valuable than learning skills. Learning skills you can do very fast in a practice. But uh, I think the lack of of this technical experience wasn't the big advantage. The stamp books from 87, 88 are a sample of that. And, and I drove people crazy. I was uh, at some point forbidden to enter the print <laughs> the print shop, I, I really had to ask permission. Before, uh, because I worked at the government, at so a state design office, and in, in it was a publishing house. So it was always the advantage to go immediately to the print shop. But uh, at some point, they wouldn't allow me anymore. So when you would have a sense of what could be done, what
0: gave you the sense that it could be realistically manifested? If somebody would say to you, no, this can't happen... What would give you the confidence that could actually happen?
2: So what I did and what I still do is I make always models of the books I'm making. So I make them in mini version, but also in actual size. And I think if I can make it with my hands, then a machine can do it much better. So for me, it's always convincing to show the, the binder and printers my model. And that's always very roughly made. If I can do it by hand, a machine can do it a thousand times better and of course, it, it worked, but with a lot of energy. It cost me always a lot of energy to, to get it done. When you finally started
0: reading about typography, I understand that you realized that everything that you were doing with typography was quote-unquote forbidden, and you stated maybe if I learned how to use typography at art school, my work would have been completely different. And I've been really thinking about your statement, that statement, and wondering how it would have been different. Do you feel like it would have been more conventional? Do you feel that you would have imagined less? I'm very intrigued by the idea of what we're taught and what we're not taught and how that influences how we approach what we do.
2: Yeah, so again, I think at art school that I learned to conceptualize uh, uh, things that it was the development of the individual. And to know about topography, of course, is important. And we learned a bit about it. But to actually do, do it and not have the burden of you cannot use so many characters uh, on a line or something like that it was totally free and open so basically I think the school I went to it was a liberal school so also for the even for graphic design it was very free and open and I was only thinking what do I want to make and how can I achieve it that's what, what I want to do.
0: I guess it's a it's a tough question to ask. How do you imagine it would have been had you learned more methodically or with more rigor in terms of what you realized you could or couldn't do at that moment? But it's hard for me to imagine that you wouldn't have rebelled in the face of those rules anyway. I'm wondering if that would have – I mean, it's, it, again, it's a tough question to sort of – that kind of conjecture – but but I can't
2: help but have fun thinking about it. <laughs> I also don't know how, I don't know but it is also something if, if I work, of course if you make books you make a reproduction so you make a large print run and, and uh, you love large print I runs. I love, and... it's, that's why you make a book, so it's a democratic uh, thing it has to go into the world but um, when I make books I don't think of that audience, if that it's sold in a shop or it's on my desk and that's my only uh, at that time, my only reference. I never think of it. Oh, it's going to be in a shop, and people will buy it. That's n- that's not my main uh, thought. Maybe if I would think of an audience and what the consequences are from what you're doing, maybe then I would do it differently. But I don't think that way. It's it's. Yeah. And I and I think that's still maybe somewhere the 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 artist or the painter who's acting like that. As a painter, you also think you want to do your piece. That's what you're doing. You you want to get done what you have in your mind. And and that's still what what I'm thinking. And so maybe there's a a little bit left of that thought of being an artist. Yes, absolutely. So you graduated college in 1985
0: and began to work at the Dutch government printing and publishing office in The Hague. How did you get that job? How did you go straight from school to working in this giant government office?
2: Yeah, so I did... Only in the f- fourth year, I think, graphic design. And I was totally into Swiss typography. I thought it was really great. And so my teacher, uh, I must say, was the, the chef, the boss of the the, the government printing office design group. Um, but he encouraged me to go to Total Design. And, of course, I went there, showed my work, and they didn't accept me. It's still... They you, didn't accept you? No. They rejected you? <laughs> yes, that's I, I, astounding. I showed work where I mixed sans-serif typefaces and they asked me, do you do that more often? And I said, I do it all the time. I thought it was an advantage. Stupid me. Of course they don't like it. They used Helvetica and only Helvetica. <laughs> so it was really very innocent and, and, and basically yeah, not so smart of me to to, um, to present that work. But on the other hand, it also... I realized that I was not accepted, that I did something that was maybe not normal.
0: What do you think what, – what was the biggest thing you, you think you learned from that rejection?
2: It's to think, what did I do? I realized that um, at that time in – so it must have been 83 or so or 84 – that I did something else than at that time people would do. And um, not that that I thought, oh, I have to explore and experiment more. Not at all. But I thought, well, okay, uh, my dream of Swiss typography was suddenly, it was gone. So it was maybe a mistake. I don't know. But anyway, um, so I told my teacher, they didn't accept, accept me a Total design and then he invited me to come to to his office to the government printing office we, because he had some belief and he uh, said well you can become a trainee at our place and yeah isn't it remarkable to look back at the arc of a life and a
0: career and realize how certain people ultimately change the course of your destiny and if it weren 't for that situation, you might not be right here
2: right now doing whatever
0: you're, it is you 're
2: doing. I mean I think anybody can
0: can look back but, but and what see is that.
2: interesting that my teacher um, knew um, that that was another teacher, Lovelink, and that he um, he knew how I worked, but that he invited me at this very strict government printing and publishing house very strict all these rules and uh, so maybe it was for him also. Good that somebody else was coming to the to the this design group, and uh, because there were all these old people sitting and doing their job for hundred years, and yeah, so maybe they need some refreshment. I don't know, but. Uh, what he did, it worked. it worked. What made you decide? What gave you the sense,
0: aside from the possibility that he might have known that that you were predisposed to behave that way? But what gave, what made you decide to break from those rigid rules of the organization and
2: start experimenting? Because you did pretty quickly, immediately. And every, it was very funny. You you get a job, and uh, it's, because it's work, it's basically an an eight to five job. But I always started later. I worked, I lived in. Amsterdam, and then I had to to travel to the Hague. So I, I also already with the time when I would would come in and would leave the office so at twelve o'clock at night or so. That was already the difference and um I um, took all the jobs nobody else wanted because I was the youngest so everybody wanted to have the best jobs the most prestigious jobs uh, at, at the government printing office and and so I was always left with, with basically the trash uh, assignments <laughs> the drack and, <laughs> and it was I think that was the big advantage to do uh, To do all these jobs, because nobody was looking at it, so there was an enormous amount of freedom to to work on these uh, yeah sometimes silly jobs, just a cover or adver- advertisements or something like that, so it was really something I had all the freedom, all the freedom.
0: What kinds of things did you start doing? What were some of your very early experiments that we might not actually ever be able to see because, you know, it's in the annals of the Hague and (laughs) some file cabinet somewhere?
2: What I did a lot was uh, making these advertisements for stamp books. And it's like uh, Wim Crowell, Karl Martens, Walter Nichols, all these famous uh, designers from the Netherlands, they all made these books about stamps and i did all these ads because nobody said making advertisements everybody said oh that's that's we don't do that. We want to make books, and of course, I also wanted to make books, and I did. But also the, the the these small jobs. But I really because nobody was looking at it, so I spent a lot of time on it to make them crazy and beautiful. And but that was recognized. So Oetchocksenaar, the the person who made our beautiful money in the in the seventies eighties with the sunflowers, and it's really beautiful. And he saw the, those ads, and he said, whoever made those ads should make the next stamp book. So that was fantastic. And so you did. And this so you this did.
0: book in 1987 and 88 really established your name um, as a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> um, it was the Niederlandse Poes 1987 and 88, two books in an extensive series about postage stamp issues. Um, Now, earlier design, earlier volumes were designed by Carol Martins and Vim Crowell. Were you intimidated following in the footsteps of these great designers that had already created these magnificent volumes?
2: Absolutely. I was totally in, in panic. It was really, I thought, what can I do? And First of all, I was always imitating them. I thought, well, maybe it should be Swiss typography, maybe it should be this, and I was really... It was, it was terrible, terrible time to finally... Uh, somebody told me, a, a good friend said to me, why don't you do what you always do, wh- what you're good at? You should do, don't be afraid, forget that it's such an important commission and um, do what you always do. And that's basically what I did. The The STEM books look like my uh, exam uh, at, at art school, which was about paper and about transparencies and I made an exhibition about it. The way the, the books look are my... Final degree show at school. Exactly well, the the design of the work actually pays no heed to the what
0: was generally proper and respectable design of the earlier volumes. Um, And I understand that both you personally, as well as the Hague, got quite a lot of hate mail. Hate mail about a stamp book.
2: What was the hate mail about? But first of all, it was surprising because I was working with my my hair uh, over my face. (laughs) You're very shy (laughs) from what I understand. (laughs) At that time, certainly. So that a To make a book that it had so much effect was really new and that people would write ugly things about graphic design. I was totally surprised and maybe very naive. I must say I was very naive and also fearless at that time. But it was a surprise how... uh, Yeah, hate mail. Now you think of email, but it was really sending letters by mail. And we received all these letters, and I have kept them all. Why? (laughs) It's evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Of what? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's so... Because when they came out, it was even... um, it 's everywhere in the news, everywhere they talked about these books that they were so crazy, so I also found out when, when you uh, do something outspoken that your position becomes very clear, so I suddenly had an, an enormous a sort of uh, people who loved my work, and an enormous group of people who said, "Well, this this woman must be crazy." And I didn't see the crazy thing. I didn't see it at all. I didn't know what people were talking about. I didn't understand. So did maybe, you... maybe it's almost autistic. Mm-hmm. I really did not understand what was the big thing. But did you? Did it impact your
0: feelings about yourself or your work? Did you take it seriously? Did you begin to doubt who you were, your talent?
2: Absolutely, there was a lot of doubt. There was so much doubt. But on the on the other hand, I won all the prizes in the world. You could get people from all over the world would come to, this, to, the, to our design group to find this person, this designer who made those books. So suddenly there were international people coming to this very national design group. So it was something was happening. And people would invite me for lectures and it it was something special. But the other thing was that uh, my colleague um, was in the jury of the best designed books that year. And he, of course, didn't like those books, but everybody in the jury liked them. And they said it's, it's something so new and we, and so unexpected. So whatever it is, it should get an award. And then he, uh, yeah, he, he agreed, but he called it a brilliant failure. And at that time in in eighty eight, when I heard it, I, I was so so depressed about it. But I think he made a, a wonderful remark. It was a test, and it was a Maybe a mistake, but maybe it was a brilliant failure. So I really, in, in also in retrospective, I like very much his words. The, his opinion about design, it must have been a failure. I understand. But why was it a failure if it
0: was breakthrough, if it was beautiful, if it was
2: original and innovative? How was how yeah, That's that? what we say now. But then it was not the case. But, uh, designers' colleagues were really... How do you say that? Scared? (laughs) No, not scared. They they thought, well, where this person suddenly comes up from nowhere, because I was always hidden in this design group, and and suddenly there is this person who does these these sort of almost avant-garde books. Yeah. So and if you do something new, it's it's not accepted. So uh, it's all later, later, and even myself when the books came out, I didn't like them so much because I didn't design them as pages because of the the enormous uh, pressure of time, I designed the books as press sheets i did all the image editing myself, which was rare at the government printing office because you would always get a, a pile of text and a pile of images and, and and by counting now we have a Mac. But there you had to do a lot of administrative administrative work to make a book. Mm-hmm. And so but those books were it's like Massimo Vignelli always wonderfully mentions, it's BC, it's before computer. It's all <laughs> by cutting and pasting. Right after
0: that experience, you decided to come to the United States, shortly thereafter. Um, You were hoping to live here in in New York City, um, and you went to all the the museums. You went to MoMA and the Whitney and the Met in an effort to get work, um, and and nobody
2: would hire you. What what happened? How was that even remotely possible? They saw the work, but they didn't understand it. It was so different, really work from a different culture. And so all the books I showed were sort of experimental. I, I did an annual report for the Art Council in the Netherlands, which was totally an, an, a conceptual piece. They didn't understand it at all. And I'm sometimes I regret because I, everywhere I left those pieces. But where are they? <laughs> Probably they were trashed. <clears throat> And they also said that my, my, book covers had no image. And they said, we here in America like an image because an image sell. And I said, well, I don't know. And I thought, well, why? And they also asked me, why are you don't have images on your cover? So maybe I'm from the Netherlands, which is a small country and we, and culture is subsidized in our, in our, in our country. So it's not, that's not very commercial. So it's more you make a book for best designed books or you, you name it. But it's, it was all subsidized. So it was a completely different uh, situation. So they didn't understand what you were trying to do? No, they said if you don't use images on, on the cover, we can simply not work with you. And
0: at that point, you were unwilling to
2: compromise. But I didn't understand. I simply didn't understand. (laughs) And I also said, if all the books have images on the cover, then it's very good to have a book without an image, no image, because then it will stand out. But they said, no, a a book cover without an image doesn't sell. So that was full stop. So there was no discussion. And
0: so you went back to Amsterdam. How did you feel about yourself at the time? Were you disappointed? You had all of this sort of provocation after the stamps uh, books and now you went to the United States to try your hand at design there and were summarily rejected everywhere you went. How did you understand yourself in all of that?
2: I think it made uh, a lot clear uh, what I was doing and from uh, where I come from. And so it helped me a lot. So maybe I'm very an optimistic person. <laughs> so th- what everybody said here, um, um, I thought I had to listen very carefully and do something with that. And so I realized that, What I'm doing, I'm from another culture and maybe it's good that I stay there and develop my skills and and my profession where, uh, where it's appreciated. And then I got also this this last job I did at uh, the government printing office was a book about the future of the world. John, John Cage, Robert Rauschenberg, came. Marina Abramovic, Dalai Lama, and I made the, the very last book with an image on the cover, oh, which, which Robert <laughs> Rauschenberg. <a> sign off. <laughs> and but immediate what about Robert Rauschenberg. He the, didn't like the cover. He, right? he didn't like the cover of this book. <laughs> And he said, I really love the book, but the cover is lousy. I used one of his paintings on the cover. And I must say, it's really a lousy cover. It's terrible. He was totally right. What was lousy about it? What? How do you decide what's lousy and what isn't? It, it, if you see the typography in combination with his work, it's really bad. Really? It's, it's very bad. What made you decide it, to it do is, it at It the is, time? In, the, it is at the red, in the Little Red Book, so uh, you can see it. But, yeah... I don't know. It it was something because he was so important also for this event. And, yeah, I thought, well, why not try it one time to use an image? It didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work. But then the the big sponsor of of this whole event was a company, SHV, Paul van Vlissingen. And he liked the book very much. So I came sort of more or less, it's all in the same time, disappointed sort of disappointed back from the US, from New York. But at the same time, I got this enormous uh, offer to uh, to work with Paul van Vlissing, who was a very, uh, was a fantastic person, very philosophical person who also owned a, a huge company in the Netherlands. And I, happened to, to work with him for 16 years. So it all came together. So I came back to the Netherlands. Imagine if I wouldn't had come back. Well, then, I, then, yeah. then I was not sitting here.
0: Well, I mean, what's interesting is after these various rejections, you get the opportunity to do something which on paper sounds kind of interesting but also kind of difficult. But ultimately you use that opportunity to change the world, and that is the design, um, the five-year project to design a book commemorating the centenary of the Dutch conglomerate SHV, a five-year project, three of which is research, which culminates in a 2,136-page history of the organization. I understand that you originally thought you 'd need four thousand pages yeah
2: four 000, five thousand <laughs> and we really wanted to make a book which is a journey through time and and we needed a certain amount of pages to get that feeling if you only have two hundred pages, you cannot then it, it does not manifest uh, that that you want to do something like that, so we really needed a lot of pages and so we wanted we wanted to have very thin paper and so the thinner the paper the the more pages and we found this beautiful paper in in Japan and we ordered it and so in the end it was um uh, 4000 and when we said um when we ordered the paper they said well um we're ready in 4 years, And it was the only thing we didn't have, 14 years. We only had five years. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. It really uh, th- So with we, we, Johan Penop and I, who worked on the book, we immediately had to uh, change our uh, thoughts and, and, yeah, reduce, reduce, reduce the, the content of the, of the book.
0: Now, the book has no page numbers. It's a 2,130-page book without page numbers. Um, there's no index And you've described it as a book which is a journey, which is not from A to B, but from K to D. Um, It's a book that is a real voyage. It's conceptual, highly conceptual. You have to find things. You have to discover things by happenstance, by coincidence. You've said that it's a book for the reader's mind, including doubts, mistakes, and changes. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that for the reader's mind including doubts, mistakes and
2: changes? So it's all these questions. That's basically what you find in the, in this book, questions. So that's uh, and every question is a is is a case study and uh, where it says do you know your backside, actually that's at the part where the company earned so much money, so much money in the, the beginning of the 1900s that was also for us to, to find archival material. The book exists of only archival material of the company. And uh, we didn't want to, yawn and I didn't want to write something about the company because the company wrote his, its history itself. We thought it was interesting that the company was so successful, is so yeah down to earth and always um, stay close to itself and... and, and yeah, they're modest. They're very <laughs> modest. Did
0: was it difficult to persuade or convince your client would you prefer to consider commissioner and we'll talk about that in a moment but was it was it difficult to persuade your client to do something so provocative so never have been done before?
2: I think that considering the, the person uh, with whom we worked, Paul van Vlissinger, he was this very philosophical uh, entrepreneur. And when we got the commission to, to make something, he said, make something unusual.
0: That was the directive.
2: That was the, the brief. Yeah, that was the only, word, the only sentence he said. That's such a challenge. It's like make a prize-winning book. How can you make something unusual? So it's, it sounds like a very attractive commission or assignment, but it's highly, highly provocative and Absolutely. difficult. Absolutely. It's like saying, Let's make something that's never been done before. Please go invent something. Exactly. So that's, that's a thing. And he, he gave us, of course, five years, which is extraordinary and very smart. So he gave us time to... Think and to rethink something, we thought, let's keep it simple. (laughs) (laughs) It's the
0: exact opposite. (laughs) Yeah,
2: that's exactly what we did. Let's keep it simple. We only do what we think is important. In our life, for Johan Penelpo and for me, what is important for us? We commit ourselves five years to this company, which we didn't even know. It's a trade company, super unsexy. So why should we do it? We only can do it if if there's something in it for us. And that's basically how we approach it. What do we want to know from this company? And... um, So basically to keep it from our side simple but a strong idea and we really stick to that one concept. We didn't compromise at all and I think that that's basically what you see. That's what the book is. You have said that you can't work for someone who tells you what
0: size of the book you should make. Um, and size is something that you have to decide on. I think that your work for the Design Museum in Zurich is a marvelous example. They wanted – they were very specific. They told you that they wanted a 148-page book utilizing 70 images. Um, you ended up with a book that was 864 pages <laughs> and ultimately put them on the map. If you hadn't created that book for them, they would not likely have the reputation that they have as a museum. How do you persuade somebody to go from – how do you inspire? Let's put it that way. How do you inspire somebody? How do you get somebody that says, we have a budget for 148 pages? You come back and say, no, it has to be 864 pages. And then they're like, okay, let's do that. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so I can tell you it's a very courageous uh, yeah. commissioner. <laughs> they were, so they were open for it. But uh, what I do is that's why I think a meeting and, and imagine if I would say send a designer from Amsterdam over to Zurich. That wouldn't work. So I go to Zurich. I go to the, uh, to the meeting and I sit with the editorial board around the table and I told them the story. You asked me to make a book fair enough, nice, I love it, I went to your archives, I've looked at it, I, t- I tell them about my research, about my work, and that my conclusion was to, to make something else, a, a book which is, uh, is a manifest of who they are and, and what enormous collection they have. And so I, I explain it first and then I of course I have a model made 100% uh, completely um um with all these images not not all of course but with a, a very convinc- convincing part of a structural part of the book made and yeah so that, it's it's seeing and believing I, I tell the story but then I have to show I immediately show what the idea is and and the interesting thing was that the editorial board was totally quiet they thought oh my god they they it happened i think what they thought would happen and they were really shocked but then uh, they said we have to call the director of the museum so well great so i did the same thing the director came i told the story showed the book and he immediately got it he said that's it we're doing it now did you show them one of your prototypes
0: that scaled the little tiny ones, or did you now, and, and I mean really
2: tiny, like one inch by three inches. Um, I, I do, did you do a full size? I did a full size because otherwise you had no idea what I was uh, making but when during the process I uh, showed small sizes but the, the convincing the, the, the meeting we had uh, that was a hundred percent book.
0: Why do you make these miniature versions of your books? They're precious they're jewel-like they're stunningly beautiful um, they take an enormous amount of work I would imagine to get something to be that small and
2: be able to to really express this, the true nature of the book. Yeah, I make them as a, as a tool. For me, it's it's. I make for every book. I make many, many, many. It's simply a tool. I can see how image and text is are distributed, and so it's easy. Like an architect makes a model to oversee the building. For me, it's also, of course, the book is not so big, but it's on the other hand, it's also to oversee exactly what is happening with the book. And So it, it helps me. And it's also because it's smaller, it's not so frightening. Uh, so it's really a working tool. It's nothing more f- that it's precious, it's nice, but that's it, not uh, the idea at all. So you're really building the book. I do. I, I don't want to say that you
0: have a style because every single book is so different. The, com- the, the one common denominator is that they're genius. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of Irma boom in the book. There is, a, there is a very um, – the centerpiece of the book is, has, has a certain level of expertise sort of embedded in it. And I read that after you designed the book for veteran graphic designer Otto Truman, he, I heard he didn't like it. He thought it was more your book than it was his book. And he objected and stated, it is, it's supposed to be a book about me. And you stated, it is my book about you. And he didn't like that at all. So I'm wondering about your involvement, your interpretation, your sort of presence in a book. It seems to me that you have to give up some sense of control
2: in order to work with you. Um, I don't think that I am present. It's a way of working which is present. It's not a person. Yeah, I make the book, of course. But if Otto Treumann makes a poster, I see an Otto Treumann poster. If Wim Krauel makes a poster, it's Wim Krauel. And it's the same. And maybe if you make a book, you have to do some research. It's not just – it is an object. It has pages. It has a history, so there's a lot to, to 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 tell. And if people come to me, uh, they don't have any more text and image ready, so I make the book. So a lot of times, I decide even some the writer, uh, of course, a photographer. I decide a lot. So of course, there is. a a certain style to create it. But I I think that I myself, I'm not visible. Like in in Otto Treumann's case, I think what I wanted to do is bringing Otto Treumann to the 21st century. And uh, he was a designer. He worked 50 years in in the 20th century. And I wanted to bring him to to a new century with another uh, way of looking and um and of course it's if if somebody else would make the book it would have been the book by somebody else so the whole sentence that it's my book and not his book i i, I think it's our book
0: now there is quite a lot of complaining in certain aspects of the design community about how much direction we have to take from clients. And in fact, a very uh, dear colleague of mine uh, referred to the situation and and said, you know, I'm not a design waitress. I'm not taking orders. Exactly. How, why do you think that that's happened? Why do you think that, I mean, there are certain people you commissioned to do a project and you kind of know that you're going to be able to maintain integrity in the process there are certain agencies that maintain integrity in the process the question is why do you feel that designers find themselves in situations where they're being asked to compromise over and over based on what the client needs
2: yeah so i think as a designer you you have to uh, make that clear what your point is so you don't have to act like that and I think that's uh, uh, maybe also a bit culture uh, thing. But you you can say what your qualities are, and that you're also an advisor, a collaborator. I think you have to make your point clear. You don't have to compromise. I don't think that at all. Um, so it's 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 you have to make you have to come with a good idea. Of course, you have to be convincing. And and I think if you have a good idea, if you have a good argument, um, I think you can you can come. Quite far, and if you and if you have no argument, then you're lost, of course. But you have to know why you are doing things. You have to have an idea about something and, and, and a good concept, and uh, then you can always have arguments with a uh, with the commissioner. But I think you can discuss arguments or an argument, and um, so I would like, for example, I would never discuss with a commissioner a color. That's so subjective, and and I think if I use yellow for a specific thing, then I can pro- uh, most probably explain why I'm doing that. But basically, I think well, that's something so much in my domain that's a, a complete. They have to give me trust to do that. I don't. So if if you go into that discussion, I don't like yellow. So let's do red. I think then you're lost. If yeah. if that's a level of discussion, don't do it. Why do you get depressed when you go to bookstores now, Irma? There's so many books which could have been on an e-reader or an iPad. And then I think it's you see all these piles of books and it, and that makes me depressive. I think, well, we have the opportunity to use another device. Why not doing it? And and if you make a book then it should be a book which where you use the, the 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 elements of the book in in a superb way, so that you have a reason to to cut trees and 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 print and and to bind. I think really uh, you have to think about why you make a book. I always reject a lot of commissions I get. I think fifty percent I simply don't do. And, adv- and I advise them to make a to to go to internet or start a website, much more effective for what they want. And, and that makes me depressive that a lot of people think, oh, it's work. I just uh, just do the book, and, and you shouldn't. You should think what you are doing. Somehow you
0: constantly seem to be stretching the possibilities of what books can look like, whether they be the triple spine of James Jennifer Georgina, your marvelous book, whether it be the paper cut by a sledgehammer for your Sheila Hicks book, which is just one of is the most beautiful book ever made. How do you keep coming up with these ideas? Where do they come from? Whether it be you know paper from coffee filters or Bible paper or making your own paper how do you
2: How do you find these ideas it 's not finding it I think it 's already there it's What I make is always very intrinsic it 's always the solution is already in 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 the assignment, so I stay very close to the assignment. And I must say, you say all these wonderful words, but I think I'm an extremely bad designer. Why? I don't. I don't even think that I'm. No, not at all. Irma. No. no, no. This
0: is very misplaced
2: modesty. That's no. not even
0: remotely possible.
2: No, I, I stay very close to to the to the to the subject. Very close. And 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 it's only one step further to think. Oh, then I do this or I do that. So for me, it's so obvious almost to do it. And <laughs> you don't believe it? No, I don't. I don't. I think of the Chanel book, which is a a completely embossed white on white. No, yeah, ink but that's like a smell—a smell you don't see, and yet it's there. It's the same with the book. The book is is not there, and it's very present. So it's for me, it's the same. So I, maybe I think. For me, it has to be very clear very almost blatant what i want to what I want to do, so I stay very close to what something is. I only make this translation irma um, <laughs> how many How many books are you working on at the moment how do you how, um, do you, how many commissions do you take um usually ten to fifteen every and- year Yeah, I'm always, because it's a sort of flow, books are in different processes. And at the moment, uh, I'm working on a book for Kopi Hewitt, a collection book. yeah nice very nice and um, designing a book for a design museum that's a tough one yeah that's (laughs) like like uh, everything design was also design museum
0: so and and is it true that you're also working on a 110 meter long tunnel near amsterdam central station that's already finished oh so you finished that so you're actually you do work even beyond the book uh, recently, yes. And do yes. you see that you'll be
2: continuing in that vein? I love it. I must say, when when I did the curtain for the UN headquarters, it was really difficult, but I made a grid. So I stayed, again, very close to what it is. But I like it, yes. But the book I'm working now on is Elements of Architecture for the Venice Biennale, directed by Rem Koolhaas, And I think that's such a challenge. And, and he, Rem is a book lover, and I'm a book lover, so... It's to talk about this book and what that book should be. I think that's, that's for me at the moment a huge uh, challenge and very interesting to work on.
0: If you were to provide young designers with one bit of advice about what it's like now to design books, design for
2: books, design with books, what would you say? I'm not, I think it's an only an advice for designing books, but I think you have to stay close to yourself. I, I think really you have to be honest to yourself. And then you're also honest to, to a commissioner. If you're commissioned by somebody, you have to be very uh, true to yourself. And I think that that's, counts for everything and, and certainly for designers. Carl Sagan memorably asserted that a book is proof
0: that humans are capable of working magic. And I think that there is nowhere in the physical making of a book more akin to the making of magic than in your work, Irma. Thank you for being on Design Matters. Thank you so much. To find out more about Irma Boom, you can go to her website, irmaboom.nl. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortega. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.